This is a Federal News Network podcast. When Gerard Bedoric arrived at the General Services Administration nearly seven years ago to be its chief financial officer, he found an organization in disarray. Fourteen organizations managing GSA's financial data and systems. More than 900 employees reporting to various CFOs across the business units and headquarters. Bedoric, who recently left federal service, told executive editor Jason Miller about how he shaped and revitalized GSA's financial management. Today, we have roughly about 540 employees. We, we transferred 195 to USDA, but we have, we've got, we've really, the organization's got more productive, more effective, more efficient. So we, we've got some improvements in, in efficiencies and productivity. Some of the things that I'll just tell you that, that I learned and, and, and went against the skeptics was, you know, we accomplished a transformation and we used government employees to do that. The change agents uh, were there in the organization. The employees like challenges and they like challenges. You know, I like to talk about home run goals and, and a home run goal is something that you would never put in a performance plan. So rather than having employees or managers sign up for goals that if they didn't meet the goal, uh, you would consider to have failed. Home run goals are, are so ambitious that you're probably not going to achieve all of them. You might not achieve any of them, but with the progress you make in moving the organization in that direction uh, will be helpful. And, and government employees like challenges and the culture uh, can be changed. So, you know, the results of the organization are good. So here we are seven years later. You said the results of the organization are good. I love this idea of home run goals. I remember a CIO a couple of years ago talked about BHAGs, big, hairy, arduous or something goals, big, hairy, audacious, uh, yeah, audacious <laughs> goals. Thank you. So whatever we're going to call it, it's, it's awesome. So, so what does the organization look like today? How much difference are you making beyond the fact GSA, I'm, I can almost guarantee you, has a clean audit? The first thing is just the bias towards action and change, the organizational transformation. Um, we changed the structure pretty quickly. All the headquarter organizations, I announced a new structure. Uh, six weeks after I got here. And then uh, out of those 11 regional organizations, I I had to learn more about that, but uh, evaluated for six months. And then the next six months, we went from 11 regional organizations to uh, four zones. We recompeted the top four levels of management. Every zone had the same structure and and they were able to collaborate on, on best practices. So this new structure was put in place within one year and, and really made a, a difference in our operational results in the audit. Our operational results metrics that were 90% are now at 99%. I don't even have to think about whether or look at the operational results each month, even though we have created over 50 dashboards. We have hundreds of metrics in areas like fund certification, accounts payable, payroll operations, RPA implementation, and the organization knows that, that these results are being reported. They're reported every month. And, and just, just by the fact that you have these in dashboards, they're paying attention. The results have been good. I talked a little bit about uh, the uh, productivity improvements and efficiencies. So we, you know, we reduced costs and staffing by, by about 23% uh, over time. But I think we're doing more and uh, uh, providing more value. The employees uh, led a lot of process standardization, especially in the regional organizations. So, you know, I set up the structure, but the employees were empowered and excited uh, to come up with standard processes in the 11 regions. So we actually created community practices within the CFO organization on each of the functional areas. And they, and two years in, we had standardized 45 processes in our regional organization. The financial audit uh, has been strong. 
2015, we had material weaknesses, a number of significant deficiencies. Uh, the number of audit findings have been reduced by uh, more than 80%. Two of the last three years, we've had no significant deficiencies, uh, zero material weaknesses. So the audit has gotten better. But you know, one of the things that's, that's interesting, uh, if you think about higher operational performance, uh, reduce resources, uh, the financial audit getting better, compliance getting better, is that uh, employee satisfaction increased 21 percentage points, went from 65% to 86%. Uh, engagement went from 66% in 2015 to 86% last year. So the Partnership for Public Service uh, does the best uh, places to work rankings uh, for the federal government. And out of the 410 organizations, we were number 19, uh, highest rated finance organizations. So so the, the organization itself, just tremendous uh, performance. There's a high-performing uh, leadership team that's in place that, that collaborates. And, and finally, uh, innovation and automation. We're known across the government for our RPA program. We have one of the, the leading programs in the federal government. We've done over uh, 100 um, automations, and we don't do them just for the CFO organization. We do them across the agency close to 400,000 hours of annualized capacity. So so that innovator automation uh, process improvement efficiencies, employee satisfaction, it, it just, uh, you, you know, I'm really, really, really proud of, of, of the team that's in place in the organization and what they've done. And I, uh, you know, I ended up bringing only two employees from outside government into the organization. The rest were either from within the existing CFO organization or within uh, other parts of GSA and a couple from outside of GSA. So j- just just uh, feel really good about where the organization uh, stands today. There's a lot to dig out of there, but let's focus on RPA for a little bit because I think that's an area where you've talked a lot about it and, and gotten a lot of uh, attention over the last couple of years. You, you said about 400,000 annualized capacity, over 100 automation programs. What was that like to get RPA started? And then how are you measuring the impact of RPA today? So Jason, anytime you want to do something new or different for an organization, you really have to focus on that. And it's easy to continue with the current operations and things you do day to day. So the the start of RPA really started for me when I saw some of the demos at some of the conferences that other agencies were doing. So NASA uh, did this. They had a a terrific demo. It, It got you excited. But then you leave that conference and, you know, you may or may not have done anything. So I really got started because I thought we were behind and needed to get going. And I challenged the organization and I said, okay, can we, can we go learn how to do RPA and put an automation in production in a hundred days? And so they uh, knew nothing about RPA. They had to look at processes, had to come up with this and, and see if they can meet the goal. Now, Truth be told, we did it in 120 days, but, you know, 120 is still good, right? But but that kind of challenge and empowerment for them to go uh, figure that out was was how we uh, started. And and I think the, um, the other thing that we did was we really focused on some smaller wins, getting started, learning the technology. We, we actually asked our employees, how many of you want to learn the technology? had 50 volunteers, we trained a dozen, and they started doing it part-time. So so the entire effort was self-funded by employees. We got this process going, learned about RPA, and then uh, really what we strived to do was to be productive and to build a, a factory that could produce automations. And 
certainly uh, we had a partner with our, our, our IT team and CIO organization. And they are a big part of our success, but we also got other parts of GSA excited about RPA and we did automations for the public building services and other functions in addition to the CFO function. Gerard Bedorick recently left federal service after seven years as chief financial officer at the General Services Administration. He was speaking there with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? 
I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, 
let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.